Hello everyone, it's July 2nd, 2019, so we're going to be getting a helicopter on Titan. It'll be 15 years, but it's worth the wait. Also, we give our best analysis of the final seconds of that Falcon Heavy core ditch. And we have a guest who has an offer that's too cool to refuse. So let's get going and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 217 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So what do we talk about? Because we talked about something earlier. <laughs> well, I got I got two topics. I got beer and I got vasectomy. You can pick you can pick either one of those or come up with something on your own. <laughs> That's the first one. What is the uh, yeah? What's this? What's this beer news? Oh well, uh, not much. I'm I'm uh, adjusting to being diabetic. Um, I got my second A1C test results back, and like literally ev- by every metric, I'm extremely healthy now i've hey. lost like 65 pounds and really um can, wow. yeah it, it's mostly because my diabetes medication is called um glucophage or metformin and uh, it turns out it's an appetite suppressor so i can eat like i forget about food now yesterday i got to around dinner time and the only reason that i thought about eating dinner was because i wanted to drink some alcohol um <laughs> i just food just wasn't part of my thought process it's really weird i'm not sure i like it um but it is nice that you know i've been medically ordered to reduce my weight and it's very easy to do so mm-hmm. yeah because you know p- people can be healthy at all sorts of weights and i was pretty darn healthy at, at my previous weight it was just um mm-hmm. uh, i have a genetic predisposition to diabetes i was eating very healthy you know i mean it, it wasn't mm-hmm. like you know like i was a fat slob no i've got that in my family too so i know kind of yeah geez. yeah and it's it's one of those things where you like you see it coming and it like it happened and i was like oh great okay this happened but anyway yesterday i did an experiment where i went and drank 12 ounces of beer and watched my blood glucose levels and my blood glucose behaved like a healthy person which is very exciting for me because it means that i can drink a beer every now and again but the exciting thing is uh the local bar that we've been uh frequenting frequenting uh it's called the lab they serve a lot of beers from New Hope, which is uh, a brewery in Sacramento. And I drank two different New Hope beers last night, and they were both very, very good. One was a milk <laughs> stout, and the other one was called Breakfast Hustle, I think. And it was um, vanilla, cinnamon, and something else. It was just like this nice blonde uh, lager that was just, you know, just slightly kind of creamy vanilla. It was very, very huh. good. Um, but I'm really happy. And, and then uh, I've had one of their other beers called Ubadank, which is uh, like a double or triple IPA. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the, I don't really like IPAs, and it was one of the best IPAs I've ever had. And that was like months ago. So I was really excited to try some of their other beers and find that I really like them. So in Ben's Beard News, I found a, a local brewery that I really like. And yeah, it, it, that's just exciting to me. Like, it doesn't matter to no. anybody else. <laughs> All right. Well, that was that was good beer talk. Better than vasectomy. All right. So let's move on to space and this week in spaceflight history. So what was our clue and who are our winners? So the clue from last week was sometimes you got to jiggle it a little if you want to get the gamma rays to come out properly. We only have one winner, and that's Chubby Turkosi. Congratulations, Chubby. This week in spaceflight history is the 2nd of July, 1952. It was the birth of Linda Godwin. So a little uh, quick uh, background, you know pre-astronaut life uh as if that matters no i'm just kidding um (laughs) so uh godwin got a uh, ba in mathematics and physics from the southeast missouri state university and then she went on to get her master's and doctorate degrees in physics at the university of missouri she went to work for nasa Uh, she worked in payload integration and then later she was a flight controller and then later a payload officer Um, so i love her mission trajectory if i was going to do you know if i was going to be an astronaut this is i think the way i would want to do it i i love payload integration i love the idea of being a flight controller and then from there, moving on to being an astronaut is is just really cool. And her tour of duty is is really cool as well. So she went on four different missions. Uh, we'll talk about them one by one. So her first mission was in April of 1991. She flew on STS-37 uh, on Atlantis. And that was the mission that launched the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. So here's where the clue comes in. Obviously, it's a, it's a gamma ray observatory. But the problem is that when they... 
uh, launched it, its high-gain antenna failed to deploy properly. Uh, and Godwin actually had to go on an unscheduled EVA to go get the uh, the antenna to pop open. So that that's where the clue comes from. You just got to go smack it on the side if, if you want those good, good gamma rays. Then her second mission was in April of 1994. It was uh, STS-59 on Endeavor. And that was an Earth observation mission. So they had a couple of different uh, radar uh, payloads and uh, they just orbited the Earth and observed these primary sites that they had set up. They had a number of different uh, cities that they were looking at, pollution, you know, air pollution and, and uh, you know, these other extra, or, uh, uh, radar uh, observations that they did of the Earth. Her third mission was in March 1996. She flew on STS-76 uh, Atlantis. So that was a mission to Mir. They brought up some cargo, brought down some trash, and also uh, did an astronaut exchange. Um, they also installed uh, experiments on the outside of Mir that were then later picked up by another shuttle mission. It was also a space hab mission, so they had extra uh, cargo storage in the in the payload bay. And they also had a, a payload called KidSat on board. Have you guys ever heard of KidSat? I uh, have huh? not. Yeah, so it was basically a camera that uh, was controlled by school kids back on Earth. And if that's not the coolest hmm. thing before the internet could, you know, before you could watch, yeah. you know, live space views on, on the internet, <laughs> I, I think that's super cool. And I'm very jealous of these little kids. And then her final mission was in December of 2001. Uh, she flew on Endeavor on STS-108. Uh, this was a mission to ISS, um, where again, they brought up a bunch of cargo, brought down some trash, and did an astronaut exchange. On board, they also had the MPLM, the Multi-Purpose Logistics Module, and uh, Godwin actually got to control the... Uh, the robotic arm to install the MPLM, which is pretty cool. This is one of the reasons that I say uh, I think she had just about a perfect career trajectory because she got to do, you know, robotics and mm -hmm. uh, payloads. And, and then she also did uh, a second EVA. She went and uh, installed um, Mylar insulation on the beta angle gimbals uh, on the on the solar array truss. So uh, I really like Linda Godwin. I think she had she got to do a lot of really cool stuff. And uh, that's this week in Spaceflight History. Cool. So what is the clue for next week? So I'm off next week. Uh, I'm going to go see Hamilton. And so Dennis has volunteered to do this week in Spaceflight History again next week. Thank you so much, Dennis. Hey, um, my pleasure. Did, did you want to read this clue as well? I, I don't know if this is the best clue, but it's kind of what kind of what we came up with. I like it. So... The clue next week in 1990 is Sean Probst's gelato. Sean Probst's gelato. P-R-O-B-S-T. If the word Probst, Probst that I'm struggling through. I'm sorry. I, I wrote that. That's my fault. Um, it is the gelato of Sean Probst. There you go. Yes, there you go. Sean Probst <laughs> gelato. Well, I happen to know the answer for this one, but I don't necessarily get the clue entirely. There's a reason for that, but um, I'm sure some listeners out there know exactly what <laughs> this is about. So uh, if you know, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. So first in the news, Dragonfly. So this is pretty incredible. This is a quadcopter drone that's going to be launched yeah. and sent to Titan. Like, this is a sound of three nerds salivating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Such a this good is... choice. I'm so happy they went with Dragonfly. <laughs> this mission won't be launching until 2026, and it won't be arriving until 2034 because that's how long it takes to get to Titan because you're going towards the outer solar system. And that that is one sad thing. As, I, as I'm looking at this now, I'm realizing my retirement, my Roth IRA, I've invested in something called Target Retirement 2035. So hopefully I'll be, <laughs> that'll be one year before I retire. <laughs> wow, that is the future. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, just to give you an idea of facing my own mortality for the first time yeah well it's a, i mean that is a good point like we're always talking about missions that are happening in the you know in some odd years from now but this is 2034 that's 15 years from now right so mm -hmm. wow okay yeah so you know it'll be a while but <laughs> yeah but yeah so i guess we're here to talk about uh, that this mission has been selected well can be before we talk about dragonfly itself can we talk about the other uh, mission uh -huh. that that was not selected. Um, so there were a lot of of really great missions um, 
they all they fall into a couple of different categories. There were um, comet sample return missions, um, and that was the other finalist was uh, Caesar, the Comet Astrobiology Exploration Sample Return, and mm-hmm. that was going to 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko. And then there was also uh, a proposal to bring back a sample from the South Pole of the Moon, which I feel like uh, falls short of the New Frontiers program, right? I feel like we can do better than that. Then there were a couple of Ocean Worlds missions, uh, including orbiters it's like okay great orbiters are fantastic but dragonfly's cooler <laughs> yes um, and i think dragonfly still might fall under that umbrella broadly yeah right yeah sure well yeah i mean it, it is going to an ocean world and that's kind of the, the category um there's also going to be a, a probe to saturn um and actually uh, dipping into saturn's atmosphere they were hoping to get some proposals to go check out the Trojan asteroids, but they didn't get any proposals. And then there was also three proposals for a Venus lander, which I would also be very excited to see a Venus lander uh, fall under the New Frontiers program. It'll happen eventually. But okay, so the, that's those are the, the possibilities that will not be. Now let's talk about Dragonfly. So this is a quadcopter, except it's not a quadcopter. I guess it's a octocopter. Octocopter. Yeah, right. Each of those, yeah, it's got the four hubs, but each hub has two uh, rotors on it. So it's got right. a totally counter rotating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that I believe is just for redundancy, right? Just a right because in case you lose one. Well, I mean, it the the configuration is really handy because it's very compact. Um, but also, if you have counter rotating blades stacked on top of each other like this. Um, cause you could potentially have eight arms, right? But when you, when you stack them on top of each other, they actually are more efficient. They produce more power per volt. So that, that's likely to be one of the major driving factors behind really? this, this form. I thought I read they took a, uh, a slight aerodynamic hit by having it. May, maybe I, in terms yeah. of forward flight, um, because it presents a greater cross section. Um, but ah, yes, yeah, stacking yeah. two on top of each other is, is more efficient in terms of lift. Which shouldn't be too difficult given the surface gravity of Titan plus how yeah. dense the atmosphere is, right? Yeah. So we're four and a half times <laughs> denser than our atmosphere. Yep. How cool is that? And like, it's, it's amazing because we, you know, the private sector has spent the last, you know, pretty much like 10 years developing this technology in a relatively difficult environment, right? Like Earth is not the easiest place to fly helicopters Mm -hmm. in. And so Titan is like the easy mode. So it's such a great target for our first uh, multi-rotor flight. Well, okay, I guess it'll be our second by the time it actually gets there. That's Um, true. But it's so far away that it has to be completely autonomous. And it's just like this perfect recipe. It makes me so happy. I think more than anything, I just can't wait to see some images come back you know mm-hmm. that's don't get me wrong oh. so C- C- right caesar was the one the mm-hmm. the 67p uh that was the kind of uh it got narrowed down to just those two right uh, last year and i mean i'm sure the science would have been tremendous there the fact yeah. that rosetta and Philae landed there uh meant that you know it was very well characterized so they could yeah. do things that you wouldn't do landing somewhere new yeah. but we've already mm-hmm. seen the surface there and just right. as a human right i know it's wrong of me but i really yeah. want to see the surface of titan in much more detail in various locations unlike you know mm-hmm. huggins got that one narrow image that we have all mm-hmm. seen which is amazing but i mean that's all you got and and it's going to be able to take images during flight too right I would hope so, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, can we talk about the fact that Dragonfly's P.I.'s last name is Turtle? Elizabeth Z.B. Turtle. <laughs> Z.B.? I love Z-B. it. Oh, my gosh. It just, oh, the nerdery. Yeah, no, she, uh, apparently she's, she's a real badass uh, when it comes to planetary science. And there's this image, like, image of her I've been seeing on Twitter, like, next to, like, a little scale model of Dragonfly, where she's mm. just, like, super duper excited about getting... <laughs> I just gotta be such a good feeling, right? <laughs> but then I, I, I then realized after kind of reading about this, the mission, that scale, that's a one-fourth scale model. So this is, this is a big... Big old thing that yeah the rotors are a meter across is that right yeah yeah yeah. so the dimensions roughly is about like a couple meters is it I think I heard three meters in its long dimension okay because according to Wikipedia it has a landing mass of about four hundred and fifty kilograms so yeah it's Mm. not light well I mean it will be lighter on Titan but you know (laughs) it's big one other concept that was passed over was putting a large inflatable balloon or I'm not sure how large but it 
looks pretty large from the renderings that I've seen. And, you know, I'm kind of wondering why didn't they go with that? Because that actually seems like a pretty good idea because it should be pretty easy to get lift with a balloon on Titan. So, and you would have much fewer parts that are moving which there's, might break down. Yeah, there's been a long history of kind of looking into that. And the upshot with the balloon thing is at least one of them. There's There's been a few different balloon-based ideas for going to Saturn. But I know at least one of them lost out to Juice, I believe. I think the, the TSSM Titan-Saturn system mission lost out to Juice. So that's, I mean, the one thing. But then I did read that as far as from a scientific perspective, the balloon would be easier, but you don't. Mm have the sampling ability unless you do something yeah. like add a harpoon at the yeah. end of it which they had considered in one version of it and so the idea with this little rotocopter is that you can kind of leverage you can combine both of those uh, capabilities you can sample the atmosphere as well as move and be mobile as well as uh, do actual surface sampling is that because the balloon wouldn't it wouldn't be able to land yeah i think so i, I mean it'd have to just probably be yeah it'd have to be airborne the whole time yeah you could probably you could probably build in like a last ditch landing like at the very end of your mission as like a, an add-on but that seems so dangerous i'm surprised that it would be that hard to control the altitude like you couldn't do it like you would a traditional balloon it's not the altitude that i would be worried about it's getting blown around the surface okay yeah i hadn't considered what the surface winds are like yeah i mean well, if they you are think about... they are weak but that still could be an issue well they may be weak but it's a balloon, so by default, it's going to have a huge cross-section, and you know, it's lighter than air. And if you think about, like, the most dangerous times of landing a Zeppelin, or the, the most dangerous times of flying a Zeppelin on Earth is landing it. You know, how many how many times have you seen, uh, you know, funny footage of uh, a hot air balloonist flying too quickly laterally at low altitudes and slamming into trees and, you know, taking out uh, sun umbrellas on beaches and stuff like that? Like it, you know, just mm -hmm. imagine trying to land something on a different planet like that. It seems like a bad idea. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that it is a much more inherently unstable type of a approach because, yeah, you have a large balloon and it, it's a thick atmosphere. So yeah. you don't have to have heavy winds, just yeah. some, and it'll get exactly. pushed. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you know what's easier is uh, landing a helicopter upside down because um... – <laughs> no, it, it – okay. I'm I'm reading this wrong. So it says, uh, although the challenges of delivering a vehicle into the Titan atmosphere are not the subject of this article, the design of the cruise stage and entry system demanded significant effort. The rotorcraft is launched upside down with the stowed yes, skids yeah. and the forward face of the aeroshell facing upward. Okay, so that's much more standard, right? You have the mm -hmm. aeroshell pointing up when you're leaving Earth and then pointing down when you enter the atmosphere. So, right. okay, so right. so that is the easy way to do it. So how how cool is it to not have the seven minutes of terror or whatever the four minutes of terror and say so you just pop off the the heat shield and just fly away from the back shell <laughs> like so cool i suppose there's a parachute attached to that back shell yeah. so it can shed mm -hmm. a lot of velocity before it releases okay yeah yeah and happily titan works in your favor that way uh -huh. titan has so many things that are <laughs> uh -huh. yeah this is going to be the the shining star of my middle age is watching this data come in. <laughs> Although, if I could temper, there is one sad little bit to all this, oh, which right. is that it's not going to see any leaks. We will probably never see the leaks in our lifetimes, it sounds like, unless we launch something soon. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, unfortunately... Well, I think it's unfortunate that if it's going to be landing there in the mid-30s, 2030s, then that means... Uh, Titan's going to be having its northern hemisphere winter, and the northern hemisphere is where most of the lakes are. And so that means that's going to be aimed away from the Earth, because the Earth is always kind of in the same direction as the sun when you're, you know, orbiting an outer planet. And so they wouldn't be able to have any direct-to-Earth communication. So they're like, all right, well, we're just going to have to go and land on the equator. But then that also kind of worked in their favor, because there's a lot of dunes there. And so mm -hmm. you can find nice flat spaces to land in. Although I guess if instead of skids, you put little flotation ring or something you could have landed i mean landing in a methane lake would be about as you know <laughs> so as, as you cool. get i mean there's not really significant waves there or anything so it'd be very very chill and that that was one of the uh landing configurations they considered right was having a flotation ring mm -hmm. yeah but the skids i mean they're helpful for some of the things that they got on there too which i thought is pretty cool like uh that's where the sampling is going to take place on the uh the legs of uh there'll be two little samplers and so it kind of will just kind of 
as it lands, where it's going to be spending most of its time, apparently. It's not going to be airborne that often. (laughs) But um, yeah, it'll be, you know, just kind of drill real quick, uh, collect the sample, and then uh, use basically a pneumatic hose to go and suck it up to the mass spectrometer instrument. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to have a hose instead of a robotic arm, Mm because that's kind of our our default mode. And and it's interesting that this is, it's basically going to be a lander like a stationary lander that gets to land multiple times like right right <laughs> it kind of it kind of teleports itself from one location to another um so hopefully we'll get you know in flight photos from high up but not quick enough to be able to select new sites on the way there this is supposed to cover quite some distance it covers 175 kilometers over 2.7 years that's a lot of flight time and this is all with just a it just has an rtg right there's Mm -hmm. no other power source obviously because you know you can't you can't do solar on titan so just with that little thermal isotope generator which is rated for eight years so yeah. as far as extended missions go, I mean... <laughs> yeah. And with that, it covers that kind of distance. I mean, that's incredible to me. I'm guessing it has to land, charge back up, then fly, mm-hmm. because I don't think that there's enough decay heat to, you know, like power this thing yeah. in flight. Although, yeah. apparently, when you factor in the low gravity plus the thick atmosphere, um, it's about 40 times more efficient than flying on Earth. So it's quite a bit easier to do on Titan. So that that was one of the the options that they could look at. And what they settled on was basically just recharging a relatively modest battery over and over again to kind of keep the weight down. And so because Titan's tidally locked to Saturn, um, it's got about eight Earth days of daylight and then eight Earth days of darkness. And so during the darkness is when it'll be doing that charging and then, you know, zipping around on the day or otherwise just doing science on the surface during the day. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So wait, hang on. If it's tidally locked to Saturn, then you have a you know, roughly a quarter of the orbit where Earth is visible. And then let's say roughly a quarter of the orbit where Earth is behind Saturn. And then a quarter of the orbit where the sun is visible, but the lander is on the opposite side of the moon. And then another quarter where the moon is pointed directly at the sun and maybe you can see Earth. So maybe like, like they're going to have to pick it's going to be a, a a longitude limited land or you know operation zone because there are going to be some longitudes that don't point at Earth or, or that do point at Earth but predominantly do so when the planet is in the way at least for a certain portion of the Saturnian year, right? But Earth and Sun are always going to be in the same direction, right? I mean, and and the Sun doesn't really matter because it's it's not a, a solar spacecraft Mm. at certain points the sun will be on the opposite side but i don't know yeah how long Mm -hmm. of a blackout time that is yeah so so like your extreme would be okay yeah i'm trying to visualize this the the extremes of the longitude would be seeing earth in the morning or seeing earth at rise at noon and set at midnight or the other extreme would be earth rising at midnight being occluded around morning and then setting at noon or you know something like that because you know saturn's definitely going to occlude earth right how i'm 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 having trouble visualizing i I mean if barring let's say the earth's at um why is the word escaping now if the earth's at you know its maximum distance from the sun let's just assume that the earth's not like you know behind the sun or yeah, directly yeah. from the sun, which I'm sure will cause problems too. Then from the spacecraft's perspective, or octocopter's perspective, at sunrise is also Earthrise, and at sunset is also Earthset, to within like six degrees or whatever, like that's Yeah, yeah. Distance. No, no, you're right. Right, because it's not revolving, or it is revolving on its axis, but it's tidally locked. I, I thought about this a lot this morning. That's the only yeah. reason I think I have any kind of idea what's going on, because I've never really just sat and considered what <laughs> a tidally locked moon on another orbiting another planet in our solar system trying to look at the earth what are you, what are you seeing okay especially when you're that far out so is this the side that's facing saturn or facing away or somewhere else oh like yeah it's the, it's the sub-saturnian side yeah i didn't the read s- that but i just think i mean if i whenever you look at maps shangri-la is the location these dunes mm-hmm. and that's kind of right where it's it's uh headed S- sub-saturnian would be under saturn yeah. So you, so potentially this thing could look up into the sky and see Saturn hanging above it. Yeah, it'd be at your zenith if you're at the exact so it, okay. point. Oh so it would be gosh, it would guys. be directly above it. You okay, guys. yeah. And just and just like looking at the Earth on the moon, right? You'd see it rotating, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be moving in the sky at all. Uh, can mm-hmm. can you actually see 
like cuz the yeah, the atmosphere is pretty darn thick and, and it's full of thiolins is that the right word thiolins yeah, yeah, yeah. thiolins thank you and th- and they're pretty um pretty opaque right it's very hazy and thick well judging by that one photo yeah it's kind of impenetrable looking <laughs> yeah so i know saturn yeah i guess i mean i actually hadn't heard or read one way or another if you could actually i know saturn would be big on the sky oh yeah like wildly big but um that's a good question because the sun i mean you know you would be able to see the sun but whether or not you would be able to see saturn and uh so since it's landing in shangri-la or the uh the shangri-la region right because it's that's a pretty big region yeah 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 it's 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 one of like yeah it's really big there is a possibility we might get to see huygens um Mm. it's probably pretty low especially because it's a hazard <laughs> right it's like <laughs> the one thing that we know about the surface is that there's a rover you really don't want to land on or <laughs> there, there's a piece of metal you don't want to land on but i don't know there, there's a slight possibility we might get to see it and that makes me really happy just given the amount of distance that this thing can cover then yeah i suppose you could make a diversion and go check it out like maybe it wouldn't be that big of a deal but i don't know all right so i gotta uh, of course yeah and of course shangri-la is about as anti-subsaturnian as you get <laughs> oh it's on the other side Damn it. i knew it was one or the other but Damn yeah it. it's 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 very close i'm assuming zero longitude is the subsaturnian longitude so yeah but it's adjacent to xanadu which i believe is where huygens landed and so huygens landed in what looked like like a dry riverbed i had it kind of you know explained mm-hmm. but or at least like you know it looked like there had been flooding in the past there but uh yes shangri-la is like you said it's gigantic and if it's and it spans the far side. Oh no, Huygens li- landed in Shangri-La too. So so it will be depending on where it flies, fairly close to Huygens. Okay, so so it's not facing Nah, Saturn? it'd be facing away from Saturn, which I guess makes yeah. sense because if yeah. Saturn's like I don't know, twelve yeah. degrees all in one direction, it'd, yeah, it'd be blocking you a lot. Yeah, because I was kind of wondering, like, given how big Saturn would be, it would be harder to get any kind of signal back to Earth mm-hmm. that could present a problem. Maybe you have something in orbit. I don't know if that was if that's part of this mission architecture that you have an orbiter as well that can maybe relay the signal, which might need to be done. I I mean I don't know, but or yeah, or you know, and you could just get around all of that by just landing on the other side you know on on the other side yeah that would be the easier thing to do (laughs) yeah plus i guess you would be in darkness more often right because you would be eclipsed Mm -hmm. by the planet (laughs) i guess you need whatever daylight you depending on i guess its inclination whether or not it actually eclipses you or not but Uh, yeah yeah. and i can confirm you would never get to see saturn itself it would be yeah yeah you're right the uh the sub-saturnian point is at zero uh longitude and then it increases going west, and Shangri-La is almost exactly at 180 degrees longitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like uh, Fry from Futurama when he has to guess about you know how many kings were on that one world or something, and he says like one, and then they throw a really big number at him. He's like, ah, oh, I knew it was going to be either something really small or really big. <laughs> yeah. I had two guesses, either Subsaturnian or anti, <laughs> or the antipode of that. So. <laughs> I just guessed wrong. Oh, well, I you know, I don't know if you guys want to talk about the instruments, but um Oh yeah. So I mean there's there's four main instruments that uh Dragonfly will be bringing and they have great names too. So there's they they all start with Dragonfly. So there's uh Drams, the Dragonfly mass spectrometer, so it's going to, you know, after the uh sampling uh, happens, it'll basically vaporize your sample and go and check out what kind of stuff you had in there. That, along with Dragons, which is the Dragonfly Gamma Ray and Neutron Spectrometer, are both for sort of a assessing what the composition of the surface is. And so this Dragons is kind of like a quick and dirty, what elements do you have there? And then if you think, oh, this site is interesting enough, let's go and sample here. Or maybe like, eh, let's just keep moving to your next one, right? Because for example, Mars Science Lab people are making those decisions every time they go to some place. The third major instrument is the DragMet, which is the Dragonfly Geophysics and Meteorology Package, which is just a whole bunch of different uh, weather and geophysical instruments on there. Uh, wind, pressure, temperature sensors. Uh, they have some things on the um, on the skids for measuring uh, the electric fields in the uh, surface, as well as a seismometer present as well so that'll be our most distant seismometer i imagine by quite a Mm. quite a margin (laughs) and then of course i think the thing we're all most excited about dragon cam which has both you know uh, navigational and kind of 
you know, context cameras as well as a microscopic imager. And it does have LED illuminators, so if it wants to see anything at night, it can, as well as a UV source for uh, shining on posits on the surface and maybe see if they get any fluorescence signal coming back from them, which will tell you something about what you have there. Yeah, so a little bit of extra spectroscopy. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, in, in a sense, they also have kind of like a, an extra... While not maybe their own instruments, they still can get information from their uh, IMU as uh, they're re-entering. That'll tell you a lot about the atmospheric density profile, mm. uh, as well as their high-gain antenna. Uh, you know, when they're communicating with Earth, uh, there's going to be Doppler shifts, and those Doppler shifts depend on the rotation of Titan, and that rotation depends on the internal structure. Because Titan is the coolest place in the solar system because it's got these, it's got the thick atmosphere, but it's got its methane cycle on the surface with rain and lakes and flooding and things like that and clouds and then you go below the surface and then you have a liquid water environment there where there's a lot of indirect evidence that there's a, uh, a, a H2O ocean down there. So it's got it all. And cryovolcanoes. You didn't mention cryovolcanoes. Oh, right. Cryovolcanoes. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the places it's going to head to. Uh, uh, the Selk Crater it seems like that's kind of its destination. And that might have been, you know, there might have been some cryovolcanism when that whatever thing hit that surface mm. and created the crater could have mm. caused a lot of melt, which then would have led to, you know, the cryovolcanic, uh, you know, flows and whatnot afterwards. So it mm -hmm. <laughs> makes me feel so good, you guys. It's going <laughs> to be interesting. Yep. Yeah. I, I will accept not landing in a lake if we get to do this, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, it's just... These images, man, it's enough to make a space nerd cry. It would be cool to see a methane lake, but this is mm -hmm. the next best thing. Yeah. All right, we're going to translate on over to a second story. Yeah, Falcon Heavy. So uh, that launch, I, I guess, you know, there's at least a couple of interesting things to talk about because we had some, well, we had one off nominal event and that was that center core, which did not stick the landing on yeah. the drone. And this is, a, you know, I mean, we don't have any, well, actually, no, we do have, uh, an official tweet from Elon Musk about what went wrong. Mm. Um, but, you know, I guess the prediction was not good in the first place. He gave it odds of about 50% of actually making this work. And this is because this was a, a highly energetic landing going 1,200 kilometers down range, which is a lot more. I think usually it's like, what, just 200 kilometers? Mm -hmm. And I believe four times the velocity. Is that is that right? I hadn't heard the velocity number, but... That actually, that doesn't seem right because then you're talking about almost orbital speed. Yeah. And I know that it got going pretty fast. But uh, yeah, this was a more of a suicide burn, right? At least I think that that's the definition that we're going with, with these types of landings, a three engine burn. Uh, well, suicide burns are just when your thrust is higher, when your thrust weight ratio is higher than one at your lowest throttle. Okay. So they're all going to be suicide burns. But yeah, if you're landing with three engines, it's, I, I think it's safe to say, David, that it's more suicide burning. I remember us having this discussion about how do you define that? So what would you call a landing like this? Just like a super suicide burn? I mean, very, very <laughs> intense. Yeah. More slam than hover. Yeah. Okay. There you go. A slam burn. I like that. That's I don't know. It's that does slam. sound good. Well, they, they, yeah, they call it a hover slam. So this would be a hover uh, slam. Yeah. Uh, what's less than a hover? Like a screeching slam. Uh, a drop. Yeah. <laughs> Drops. Yeah. So what went wrong? So we know that according to the tweet by Elon, he said high entry force and heat breached the engine bay and center engine TVC failed. So the thrust vector control on that center engine mm -hmm. failed. The cool thing is because I watched this live, you know, and it's hard to tell because it was landing at night. And so you can't see much, but it yeah. looks Mm -hmm. like from what i could tell the thing at the last second literally tilted over sideways and flew headfirst into the ocean now i could be wrong because i it's hard to see but it looked like i was looking at landing legs facing me you know what i mean that's what it looked to me yeah like yeah. it was burning away from the camera pretty much yeah. that's insane because normally it just continues the descent without making the correction and then it just plunges mm -hmm. into the ocean but i guess in this case it had to make a more drastic correction because it didn't have the thrust vectoring that it generally did have well remember so if it doesn't why. have thrust vectoring then it can't make that correction right because then it's relying on just its uh ping pong paddles the uh the gr the grid fins grid and the, fins. once yeah. once you're below um the speed of sound those grid fins do basically nothing so i think that rotation is just you know that's what they're getting unless they were trying to correct with uh with differential thrust from the the two side engines but that seems absolutely crazy 
it looked like it was pretty close to the pad when it you know made that correction and so my guess was that it, it was kind of already going to hit it except that it had to make the correction at the last second and so it did actually have to uh, okay, however so, it did it i don't know yeah so um that that is contrary to my understanding so um from what we've heard in the past when it does its re-entry burn mm -hmm. like, like it's boost back burn then it's re-entry burn it's not targeting its actual landing site it's targeting right off to the side and so it once it starts its landing burn, that's when it's doing its diversion to go back onto target. So depending right, right. on at what point um, the TVC system actually failed, mm -hmm. um, and it, it sounds like it was during the reentry that, that the TVC failed, then when it starts up its landing burn, it's already off target and it's not going to be able to correct back to its target. And so uh, even though I, I agree, it, it, that's kind of what it looks like. I think it's much more likely that it was already off target. It was trying to correct itself to get on target and couldn't do so. And so as it's rotating, it's going to go in crazy directions. And that rotation is going to be way more, uh, uh, it's going to have a, a much bigger effect on the direction of the vehicles going on than whatever uh, whatever correction it's trying to do. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say what actually happened here, but I, I, I think that's, I mean, that's, I understand that it does target or it tries to overshoot. Mm -hmm. That's a default entry, but it just looked like it was in the final seconds of coming in. And so it looked like to me that it actually w was pretty much on, on target and it had maybe, I don't know, three more seconds left. And then at the very last second, it kind of pitched over and made this, you know, drastic ditch into the ocean. But yeah, I mean, but, I could yeah. be wrong, but yeah, it's like, I don't know if there's some crazy depth perception effect or something, but yeah, it looked like it was even within the bullseye. Although I guess as I'm looking at it now, it's kind of tough to tell what its orientation is as it's coming in, because all mm -hmm. you can really see is just the flame. Mm -hmm. It's so much brighter that you can't tell is the rest of the rocket just sticking up and out of frame, or is the rest of the rocket sticking into the direction that it ultimately yeah. you can and, tell. And you can, you can see a little bit of of impingement on the deck, but it's hard to tell if it's, I feel like that isn't going to tell you very much about what direction the rocket's pointing in. Although I guess the fact that it's, you know, it's has so little vertical motion means that it couldn't have been, you know, if it comes from the top and it's vertical motion stops, then it has to have some vertical alignment, right? Otherwise yeah, but it, that, it wouldn't that, just fall on its side like that. Uh, disappearing off into the distance will also have that effect. It'll make it look like it's traveling slower vertically. Then I feel like it should be coming over the camera's right shoulder if it was doing that. You know what I mean? As opposed to coming from above. But Yeah, let, let me give you a hypothesis. What if... Um, I, I'm going to give you a hypothesis and I want you to tell me what you think the camera would look like for this. What if... It was coming in for its landing burn, and it was, uh, we don't know which direction the deck is pointing here, so let's call the direction the camera is facing, let's call that north. So what if it's coming in towards the drone ship, it hasn't made its landing diversion burn, and so it's coming in north of the deck. Mm -hmm. It starts up the engines, and by this time it's already rotated, so it's like 45 degrees off, and it's pointing 45 degrees to the north. And it's and laterally it's positioned to the north of the deck. It starts up its engines to do a landing burn. Without TVC, it can't correct to pitch up, and so it stays pitched over at 45 degrees. It lights up, it throws a bunch of engine exhaust at the deck. Um, so the engine exhaust, instead of moving top down, is moving from north to south at a 45 degree angle. And then it continues to pitch over and slams into the water to the north of the deck. How would that look different than the footage that we have now? That is a good description. I, I was with you on every step of that. My my first naive just look at this was that it came in vertical and then suddenly like just goes and tips over 90 degrees and blasts away when it's only... Yeah. Tens and, of meters away from the deck, that seems a yeah. little and, and the problem extreme. that I have with that is that not only would it have to start that pitch down, like let's say it's pitch, let's say it pitches down, but it would also have to stop that pitch because it's not rotating that much when it hits the water. It is rotating right. downward a little bit, but it would have to pitch over sharply, stop that pitch motion, and hold that attitude, you know, roughly. 
had some damn good TVC for something that just lost its. Yeah, TVC. exactly. <laughs> well, and that was one thing that really perplexed me was how did it pitch over so quickly? Because I was yeah. talking about that in the ground control chat room, and I was thinking like maybe the nitrogen cold gas thrusters are part of that abort yeah. sequence, and it can just kick it over and get it out of the way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it does look like how you described it. That makes sense. I was actually talking about how how I'm really not good at looking at video. Like I'm just not very forensic in you know, these <laughs> these things. Like there's just there's there's always just a lot of obvious stuff that I miss, but then someone points it out and I'm like, oh yeah, there it is. Like, you know, I can't mm-hmm. do Where's Waldo. Um, but now <laughs> I'm seeing it and that looks about consistent. Like, yeah, it's coming in mm-hmm. with the engines facing the camera and it looks like it pretty much increases its thrust at that point and then shoots off north, mm-hmm. quote unquote, north of the... Uh, it doesn't even look like it's increasing its thrust to me because it's hard to tell It's hard to tell how fast it was moving before it entered the frame. It would have to decrease thrust in order to hit the deck, right? Because otherwise it wouldn't land. So it might not have throttled like all the way down, but either yeah. way, because well, and we, we know slam, that with so. these three engine landings that the two side engines shut off before, like it lands on one mm-hmm. engine. It just, it does like right. a two stage. So yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. All right. So should we talk about the, the really cool thing that happened? Okay. So yeah, the, you mean the capture of that fairing? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> or half of one. Yeah. Good job. Mystery. I thought for sure they were going to give up on this. I really, truly thought they were going to give up on it. And Miss Miss Tree caught a fairy. This is so cool. Now, is there footage of that? Because I haven't seen it That yet. was my question. I've seen a photo. <laughs> oh, okay. I've seen a photo, but I haven't seen any. All video. I've seen is the photo as well. So these fairings, what, they cost uh, $3 million? Is it $6 million? It's one of the two. I don't remember, I don't remember which, but mm. so they, they saved a chunk of change there. So they caught one. And now, was it their goal to catch both? And they just missed the one because I mean both fairings can fly back to the same destination. Pres- right, and I assume that they have two nets, right? Is that how mm-hmm. it works? No, they could just have one net, I believe. So I, I think they That's need a two. Tight nets. squeeze, yeah. I wouldn't. Yeah, because I wouldn't want the would fairing to hit the other fairing, you know. Because yeah. at least if it goes in the drink, you can. You know, <laughs> yeah, clean it up a bit. We're but... <laughs> barely to the point where we can catch one of them, much less catch one and have enough room for the other. So. When they were attempting recovery all this time, were they only expecting to catch one and they didn't want to catch a second one? I believe so. I, I don't believe that they are trying to catch both of them. I thought they were trying to catch both. Okay. I, oh I could th- I could be totally wrong, but the way that they're talking about it, it sounds like they're just working on one at a time. Oh my God, you guys, I just thought of the name of what the second fair and catching ship should be. Mr. E. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. How do I boot somebody from this ringer conversation? All right, I'll shut up. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And does anyone want to name a rover? <laughs> so who do we have to help us with that? <laughs> yeah, so we we had a really cool email come in this week where we talked about naming the Mars 2020 rover last week. And uh, someone was paying attention. And so it turns out there's actually a, the contest to name it just is getting ready to get started. And so today to come talk to us about it is Dr. Bob Collum. Uh, he's a project coordinator from the Science Mission Directorate. Welcome, Bob. How you doing? Doing well. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess tell us about this this contest and, and what help you guys need. Sure, I, I am happy to. So uh, as you mentioned, we're, we're looking to name the next uh, rover, the rover that's going to be launching in 2020. Um, and although we've been referring to it as the Mars 2020 rover, it doesn't have a have a name yet. So like we've done for every single rover that has landed on Mars, um, all the way back to Sojourner, we're, we're opening it up to a student contest to uh, get some names from, from U.S. residents, um, kids 5 through 18, and, and we'll go through a big round of judging to, to narrow it down to the name that will fly on the rover, go on all the posters. Um, it's a great way to name a rover. It makes it, makes it a lot of fun for us, and mm. we get some really cool names from the kids. You said there's going to be a lot of names coming in. Your estimate is like 9,000-something? Uh, a bit more than that. Uh, oh, I think for the... Uh, I don't know the number right in front of me, but for curiosity, it was in the tens of thousands. And we're wow. hoping to get up to 100,000 if, if oh, we can wow. really push it. Um, and so one of the big things we need help with is if we're going to get that many names submitted, we need a lot of judges to help us 
uh, sort through them to, to read through the kids' names, through their justification, you know, why should the rover be called this? And uh, help us weed out the rover McRover faces and and <laughs> help us pick pick the curiosities, the opportunities. All right. Well, I'm going to have to stop you right there because rover McRover face is an excellent name. <laughs> <laughs> and I really think you should consider it. Um, <laughs> uh, my tax dollars are funding this rover. I'm <laughs> just <laughs> It's very true. Uh, so, so the nine thousand number is actually how many judges you're looking for? Is that right? We're looking for, I think, like three thousand judges. Oh, okay, and we would be we'd be really happy. Um, although we'll take as many as we can get. <laughs> um, so, I you know, I'm I'm hoping you all can can help us spread the news and and get some some more folks excited. We last I checked, we had just broken a thousand. So we're oh, we're good. we're making pretty good progress that that's pretty good because it's currently sunday and you guys open the volunteer registration on tuesday or, or at least the the press release went out on tuesday so that's that's not bad it, it's it's a promising start but we still need more <laughs> so are there any qualifications for being a judge the biggest thing we ask from our judges is that they are folks who are invested and uh, engaged with stem with with science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that they, they want to, to promote the sciences and, and that they'll, they'll be able to stick around for the whole contest. We, we expect it'll be about five hours of, of time commitment, and you do have to be a U.S. resident to be a judge as well. But other than that, it's pretty much open to anyone. So I was, I was sending it to Facebook friends. I was sending it to, <laughs> to people around the workplace. Um, we need a bunch of judges, and anyone who's enthusiastic about it can make a contribution. Is it also that you have to be a U.S. citizen to actually be a judge or just somebody who makes a vote? All we're asking is U.S. residents. You don't have to have citizenship, but you have to live in the U.S. territory or overseas at a, a military base embassy, that sort of thing. Okay, so you're asking for five hours. What what does uh, actually judging these entries look like? Sure. So I can talk a little bit about like the broad competition process. We'll oh, um, we'll be breaking. Um, so five through eighteens are our age range. We'll be breaking it down into three sections within that. Um, so lumping elementary school kids five to like 10, 11, and then 11 to 14, 15, and then 15 to 18. Just, you know, it's a little unfair to compare a high schooler's essay with a with a first graders. And so as a judge, you will be assigned to one of those age groups and you will help You'll get like a hundred entries. Uh, how many depends on how many uh, name submissions we get, mm. and from there you'll be reading through their name. And the the big thing is their essay justifying the name. It's 150 words, so hopefully it won't be too long to read. And and then you'll uh, from there you'll you'll recommend names to move on to the next round of uh, of selection. We we've got some great partners who are helping us out with this. Patel and future engineers, and they're they're going to be helping us run the competition. So they'll help us get from the hundred thousand names that we get with all the judges' work down to thirty names that will be submitted to NASA headquarters and JPL with the Mars twenty twenty mission team doing a, a selection down to nine. From those nine, we'll do a, a public poll to to get a sense of uh, how to how does the how does the US feel about the the top 9 we're considering we'll also be doing some video interviews with those finalists mm. so that'll hopefully be a great opportunity for the kids um to to talk to an astronaut to to talk to you know some folks in the uh, the science mission directorate some folks on the mission team about why why they think their name's a good name and we're also going to give the kids an opportunity to ask questions of of the of those final judges and then the um the actual decision will be made by nasa headquarters sometime in um, february is what we're targeting mm. and that's that's just so we have enough time to get get the name on the rover before it gets packaged up for launch yeah that was what i was wondering was what the timeline was for this uh project because you know after all it's launching next year so how long is this uh when do you hope to have the uh first kind of pairing down from 10,000 to 30 uh finished so we've opened the call for judges now and this will run until probably october november the the contest for submitting names will open on august 1st we're trying to get you know when all the kids get back to school um we want to 
take advantage while their creative juices are running hot. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then the contest will close kind of November. And so those, those 30 names will, will start coming to headquarters right around the end of the year. Um, so that we can make that final decision in February. I guess one of the things that I'm really curious about is like, uh, are you guys using any statistical analysis to help drive uh, a fair selection? So like, like, like what's in my head is, you know, the, the Google's new reCAPTCHA system where you, well, I guess, I guess it was the first reCAPTCHA where you were not only translating a, a, a garbled word, but you were also translating a, a difficult to read word that came from uh, OCRing a book. And so to actually be able to know that there was uh, a human, right, right, because, oh boy, I'm not doing a good job with this. Um, <laughs> so the, the challenge of, of a reCAPTCHA is to have something that's created by a computer, but unreadable by a computer. And doing the book system, they're not only starting with a word that um, a computer generated, but they're starting with a word that was in a book that a computer can't read by by definition. Um, and so they would have multiple people doing passes over the same word before they accepted um, the common answer as, you know, as like the ground truth. Um, so are, are you guys having judges each go over each essay a single time? Or are you doing some overlap there to make sure that, you know, you don't have judges who are just throwing things out or like, like how does this actually work in, in the, the gears behind the scene? I think that would be the goal. If we can get enough judges, we'll have multiple judges review the same entries so that, yeah, name doesn't get thrown out just because someone's feeling uh, vindictive, that, that, <laughs> you know, and that, that's part of why we're splitting into the age groups too, so that, that the judges are, can be assigned to a, to a group they feel comfortable reading essays from, whether that's elementary or high school. We're, we're also, I forgot to mention this in the, the challenge process, but one of the stages from the down select from 100,000 to 30 will be uh, identifying state winners um, from mm. all 50 states, as well as D.C. and Puerto Rico, and then the, the territories get lumped in in various places. So the, the judges will, will not only be looking at a specific age range, but a specific kind of state submissions so that they can help us pick. I think it's 156 total state winners, one from each age group. And uh, we'll be trying to trying to celebrate the, the geographic diversity of our submissions and uh, give those kids a little extra recognition. Um, we're still working on what the, the prizes will be for that. Mm, that's pretty cool. And uh, w were you familiar with um, with previous naming contests? Or is this your first one? Only as an observer, yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm uh, pretty new to, to this world. So it's it's been an exciting journey learning about it and thinking <laughs> through all of the things that go through a naming contest, which <laughs> from, from the outside seems pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when you start getting up there into the you know tens of thousands of names submitted. So real quick, do you happen to know any of the lessons learned from previous naming contests? I think one of the biggest lessons learned, and I, I think this is an advantage of living, you know, 10 years after they picked Curiosity's name, <laughs> is, is that it's way easier to do things on the internet than it right. is um, uh, via a snail mail. Uh, yeah. A lot of the, the previous contests, you had to actually mail something in. And so this contest, oh, we're really? going all online mm. yeah. um, to... And we're we're online for sourcing the judges. We're online for the judging, for the for the contest submissions. So we're hoping to really streamline things so so that it's it's easier for folks to participate, and that we can we can get more names considered. Yeah, that is fantastic. For all the judges, are there going to be multiple rounds for each judge, or is this just like a one time thing? And then after you make your submission, you hand it off to someone else. Like, are there multiple stages for each judge? Mm -hmm. We're we're still working on the uh on the details of of how judges will will move through the through the process i think currently it's it's kind of a, a matter of the judges enthusiasm if they if, if the first <laughs> if the first round of judging didn't scare them away then we're happy to to keep them going and then we we may try to bring in some of those celebrity-esque judges you know jim green kind of figures to in the later rounds to uh to help narrow down further the judging application form says are you willing to do multiple rounds and uh like an idiot i checked yes so <laughs> we'll see uh how my enthusiasm does <laughs> 
But I, I think personally, I think this is super exciting and such a cool little thing that you can do. Like, you know, yeah, I help name a rover. Like, this mm-hmm. makes me feel really good. And, you know, there's a one in a couple thousand chance that I will read or, you know, that any of us will, will mm-hmm. read the uh, the winning entry right. for the first time. I can't imagine how exciting it would be to, <laughs> to have your name get, yeah. get sent to Mars. I would guess that there's got to be multiple entries or there has to be like multiple entries that are the same name. I mean, maybe yes. for different reasons, but, yeah, that, you know, yeah. that that's bound right. to happen. So I wonder in that case, is there still just one winner or is it multiple winners? <laughs> I guess it would be one because it's, I suppose, the reason behind the name that perhaps counts more. Yeah, the the, the justification is definitely part of it. Um, you know, what what kind of mythology do you want to send the rover mm-hmm. with? So we we will have one grand prize winner, and they will be um, they'll be invited to the launch. They'll get to get to watch uh, the the rocket take off from KSC uh, Kennedy Space Center. And, and that should be happening in July of 2020. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll be able to invite a lot of, you know, either the state winners or, or more of these contrast, contest entrants. Um, mm. it, it should be a real a real party down at, at, down at Kennedy <laughs> for when 2020 gets off the pad. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I think the biggest thing I'd want to emphasize going on is just that anyone who lives in the U.S. can be a judge. And any, any student who lives in the U.S. can submit a name. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, it's a it's an opportunity to send a little bit of yourself to Mars and be part of this kind of legacy of exploration. Yeah, I think this is way more meaningful than just, you know, because there have been a number of send your name to Mars kind of things where, you know, you get your you get a couple bits on a, on a CD or something. But like, even if you submit a name and it isn't picked, I think it, this is much sending much more of yourself you know, entangling yourself in the mission more than mm-hmm. just typing in a, a form on a, on a website somewhere. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Bob. We have two traditional final questions that we ask interviewees. Uh, so first, uh, where would you like to be found on the internet? Well, if you're interested in um, applying to be a judge, I go to futureengineers.org, and I'm sure we'll have a link in the show description. Yep. I'd also recommend following the hashtag Mars2020 on, on Twitter and on most social media platforms to keep up with progress on the mission, and we'll be sharing uh, contest updates through that hashtag as well. Uh, and then I can be found at call him Bob uh, with underscores between the words. If you, if you want to keep up to date on all things humans to Mars uh, and Mars exploration, I like to share those there. Great. And one final question. Um, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would that be? One object with me into space. Mm-hmm. I, I presume we aren't mass and volume constrained for this. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And you notice how we're jumping past the interesting thing, which is getting to go to space. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so what am I bringing with me? I feel like all the things I would miss from Earth are food related. Right. I, was just uh, food too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could. I don't know if I could bring a ramen shop. Maybe I would. I would stick that <laughs> on my spacecraft. But I feel like that yeah. counts as more than one object. Uh, I think it's I like definitely a good cooking knife would would be essential. Perhaps maybe that's what I'll go with. I'll go with a like a chef's knife, just so that that when we we start getting bored with our our meals ready to eat i can i can uh can whip something up a little more interesting right a little terrifying <laughs> for any martians we encounter as well i don't know yeah but cutting things i guess you would need a zero g cutting board which would have to restrain that food i don't know i'm not sure how that yeah, would yeah so so uh, like a vacuum plate or something yeah stick little magnets in the bottom of all my apples uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well bob it's been a delight to talk to you thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for giving me this opportunity All right, upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we just got two, and the first one, Dennis, I believe you're going to tell us about that one. Right, so first up we've got on July 5th a uh, Soyuz 2.1B with a frigate upper stage that will be taking the Meteor M number 2-2 uh, satellite, which is a uh, uh, Russian uh, remote sensing satellite, along with a whole slew, a couple dozen small sats that kind of were added on uh, not really last minute, but later on. Uh, they 
we were supposed to launch earlier, but uh, need to find a new home. And so this launch is uh, on July 5th at 0541 UTC, uh, an instantaneous launch going to sun-synchronous orbit, and it will be the fifth launch from Vostochny Cosmodrome. The second launch is on July 6th, and that is a Vega launching Falcon I-1, and that is an Earth imaging satellite for the UAE. See, that is uh, July 6th at 0153.03 UTC. So yeah, there you go, 1.53 in the morning in three seconds. Uh, and that's launching out of Launch Area 1 in Kourou, and that looks to be an instantaneous launch window. And I think that's it. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So that's all, so we will deorbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by email info at theorbitalmechanics.com So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.